0: It's been General Richard's last day as Chief of the Defence Staff and he's issued a final warning over Syria. The debate over Trident hots up, dividing
1: the government. We should continue to have a credible nuclear deterrent, but the way in which we deliver it does not need to be based on assumptions that were developed in the Cold War.
0: And speaking of the Cold War, are the Russians turning their backs on modern technology? Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper, standing in for Kate Jabot. The outgoing chief of the defence staff has warned Britain has to be prepared to go to war if it wishes to restrain the Syrian regime by implementing no-fly zones and arming the rebels. General Sir David Richards, who steps down from his post today, has told the Telegraph that enforcing no-fly zones over the country would be insufficient alone to restrain regime forces and that ground targets would have to be hit. Meanwhile, the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond has played down the comments, but said giving such warning was part of Sir David's job.
2: Well, just be clear that what the role of the military and the Ministry of Defence is, our, our job is to prepare for all sorts of potential contingencies, to have options available for the Prime Minister and the National Security Council, and in the case of the CDS, to give advice about how we would do things and how challenging they would be, and that's what David Richards consistently has done. But it is the politicians that make the decisions, and having received advice from the military, if the politicians decide to do something, I know that our military will always, in the most professional way, do everything they can
0: to deliver on those decisions. Philip Hammond there. Well, in the studio now, I'm joined by Major General Julian Thompson, former commander of the Royal Marines, and, as usual, by our BFBS defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Gentlemen, welcome, first of all. And what do you make of that last interview? It's across the papers and across TV and radio today.
3: Well, I think that General Richard is perfectly correct. to to issue these warnings. Uh, The Syrians are a quite different proposition from Libya, which was thought to be a pushover and turned out not to be. I mean, for example, the Syrians have got over 3,000 tanks, 800 quite modern ones. So it's not something that you can just do by flying around and in trying to impose a no-fly zone.
0: Christopher, is this indicative of his stance of standing up to politicians, do you think?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure
2: I mean, when you say somebody stands up, especially when you've got a general, you know, a uniform guy, and then you've got the politicians, and you've got the civil service, don't forget it's a, it's a triumphant. Uh, it's not standing up in the sense that it's a confrontation. His job is to say, listen, I know about soldiering. I know, as a joint chairman of the Joint Chiefs effectively. I also know about the Navy and I know about the RAF case. You've got to understand that this is your policy as political policy of what to do, let's say, over Syria. I am telling you that as a practical general, a practical soldier, a practical commander, this is the problem you've got. You can't just bowl in there and say, okay, uh, we're going to have no-fly zones. Because no-fly zones, you get mission creep. Uh, And as Julian says, what do you do about the Armour Division? Uh, What do you do about all sorts of other things going on? I mean, if you say a no-fly zone will knock out any aircraft that comes up in the sky and we'll get air superiority, not just supremacy, we'll get air superiority, then somebody will say, well, look, why don't we go knock out their radars? Uh Because without the radars, they can't operate it. Then you're into a totally
0: different war. Julian, let's talk about Afghanistan General Richards was the first person there To command the whole mission, commanding US troops uh, It's been a difficult journey for us there He spoke about the Taliban Saying it was right to communicate with them Whilst we're still in the country And also spoke about post-2014 Do you think he's on the ball with his comments there?
3: I think absolutely You've got In the end, you have to talk to the enemy because if you don't, you don't sort it out. And talking to the Taliban is perfectly correct, and there's nothing new about that. We've talked to lots of enemies, in quotation marks, over, over the years, because this is not a war about total defeat or victory. It's about trying to sort out a, a political system in a country, so he's correct there. And he, he, his words are, are very wise uh, in that respect. Now, as to what's going to be left there they haven't decided, or they may have decided it hasn't been announced, my guess is it would be trainers, and possibly though it'll never probably be declared publicly, some special forces.
0: Let's sum up just briefly, if we may Christopher, on his uh, role. Do you think he'll be missed, or has he been a thorn in the side of the politicians?
3: I don't think he's been a
2: thorn, no. Um, Don't forget, he has been uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, effectively, uh, at one of the longest wars, although not a state-to-state war, in British Army history. Uh, he has been, therefore, a wartime leader. He, it's his job not to say, right, I'm a general, therefore the, the army's taken over the Ministry of Defence. I represent the views of all three services, and we use all three services in Afghanistan. So that's that's been his role. When the new guy turns up, well, as today, General Horton turns up, he too is a soldier, but he too is purple, or should be purple, and the successful one starting, I suppose... 82 Julian with uh, Terry Lewin yeah. made it very clear unless you're purple unless you're speaking and understanding all three services you're going to fail and also the, the, the politicians will go for your throat the guy that, uh, that uh, David Richards successfully watched very keenly was not the defence ministry was not the Prime Minister was the Chief Secretary to the Treasury he is the most powerful man in the future of the defence ministry and therefore the British military Gentlemen, thank
0: you for now. Still to come is the SAS selection process too tough and why the Kremlin is abandoning PCs in favour of a humble typewriter. the decision on Trident won't be taken for another three years, but the serious debate began this week. The Tories and Labour want a like-for-light replacement. The Lib Dems want a budget buy. Will Inglist asked Liberal Democrat Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Danny Alexander, if this was just doing defence on the cheap.
1: No, it's not. I mean, look, I've had the privilege uh, over the past uh, few months uh, of spending time with our brilliant armed forces personnel who deliver this deterrent, the civilians who support them, uh, in doing so. And the first thing I would say is that I have enormous admiration for the work that's carried out and for the sacrifices that our submariners in particular make to deliver uh, the deterrence. What this is about is saying we should continue to have a credible nuclear deterrent but the way in which we deliver it does not need to be based on assumptions that were developed in the Cold War. We should look at the threats we currently face today and we expect to face in the future and adapt our posture to meet those threats. Of course, any successor
0: submarines to the current Vanguard class will be in service until the middle of century and, indeed, beyond. That's an awfully long way to try and look into the crystal ball and decide that there will
3: be no nuclear threat to the UK.
1: Well, what I'd say is the posture that has uh, has come through the review, we looked at a range of alternative postures, is based on the idea that we should operate at a lower degree of of, of readiness when there's uh, no threat, uh, but that we should have the capability to surge to a continuous posture for a period of time uh, should threats re-emerge in future. That is very much the way in which our conventional armed forces uh, operate, and I think it is a reasonable proposition to say that that is a a posture that could be adopted for nuclear deterrence. As
0: Chief Secretary of the Treasury, you have overseen some extremely deep defence cuts and are on the record of saying that you believe that those to the army could go further. Is it fair to infer from that that you're no fan of the military?
1: Quite the opposite. I'm an enormous fan of the military. I've had the privilege in government, both as Chief Secretary and indeed as a member of the National Security Council, of engaging in debates firsthand and spending time with all of our armed forces over the past three years, and a particular privilege to have had the chance to spend a lot of time with those people who work incredibly hard, unsung heroes, delivering our nuclear deterrence. I'm full of admiration for that. I've, been, I've had less admiration for the way in which the defence budget has been run in the past. We've had to make very difficult choices in order to bring the budget back into balance. And frankly, you know, in the recent spending round, we were able to find efficiency savings within the Department of Defence, uh, within the way in which weapons are procured, for example, uh, which enabled us not to make any further changes to the numbers of frontline military personnel. I'm very proud of the fact that we've been able to change the way the defence budget is run, such that we can protect our military outputs, which are vitally important to this country, while still making efficiency savings within the department. That's the right way to make savings.
0: There we go. Uh, that was uh, Danny Alexander talking with Will Inglis, joined now by naval historian and author of Vanguard to Trident, British naval policy since World War II, Professor Eric Grove from Salford University, alongside uh, Christopher Lee. Uh, Eric, first of all, this week's Cabinet Office report on Trident has spurred on the debate, but has it
4: really changed anything, do you think? Well, I think it's given us a lot more information. I mean, it's very interesting, actually, what they've looked at and the way they've looked at it. And it's, very, and it's interesting and, and, and rather a good thing, actually, that we, we've looked at the options before a decision is taken. I once remember, I, th- I think, was Secretary of State John not saying, oh, you don't talk about the options publicly until you've actually taken a decision. So we seem to be in a slightly uh, better world. But um, interesting figures. It it looks as if the submarine-launched ballistic missile system is the cheapest overall. Uh, Marginal savings are possible if you cut the number of ballistic missile-firing submarines, uh, as the Liberal Democrats seem to want to, some say two, some say three. But those those savings are only marginal. And it it, it demonstrates what I thought to to start with, and in fact has been in government statements before, that in fact the submarine-launched ballistic missile is the best way of deploying a a minimum nuclear deterrent, as we like to say
2: tell you, it's one thought here,
4: Eric, and that's this. Um, when
2: they say the savings, what they're really talking about is not so much the submarines, not much the replacement of Vanguard, which is expensive enough, it's the infrastructure. And if you don't change the system then you don't have to change things like Faslane or whatever. If you start sticking, uh, I don't know, silos in Scottish Highlands and you've got a big problem... Very expensive. The other side of this, and you can't shift... You can't, Certainly in Scotland as well, in current circumstances. <laughs> yes, yes. And you can't shift it down to Barrow or you can't shift, uh, let's say, Vanguard down to, I don't know, Devonport if there's Scottish independence. Now, the other thing is, which I found the most interesting of, uh, in all the reports that I've read in the past seven years... No one has considered the other option, and that is not having a nuclear
0: capability. Well, that's the key, Eric, isn't it? Do we need Trident? Do we need the nuclear capability in this post-Cold
4: War era? I would be very, very concerned if Britain was going to go into the 21st century, a century that we, we've, we've seen already is pretty unstable in lots of ways, with nuclear powers like Pakistan, with the possibility of Iran becoming a nuclear power, although I think that can be over, oh, overstated. We're talking about decades and decades into the future. And in the past, I think I would go as far as saying having our own nuclear deterrent has made Britain something of a sanctuary in all but the most total kind of nuclear war. And people go on about cyber security and terrorism. I mean, it's even, even 7-7 would pale into insignificance if a nuclear weapon went off in a populated area, or, or even in a not very, pop, not very populated area. So I think maintaining a small force of nuclear weapons, a flexible force that can be used in small numbers, with lower yields, in larger numbers, with rather higher yields, does in fact give Britain a vital amount of security she would not otherwise have. And although I don't have any children, if I had, I would worry about them if we didn't have a nuclear force. There
2: are two quick points though. here. One, it is an assumption that deterrence stopped uh, a, a conflict between the, the, what was then the Soviet Union and the Western world. It's an assumption. I mean, you can, you can argue it doesn't really matter. That's an argument, isn't it? Really? Yeah, the second <laughs> thing is, do you honestly believe that w- w- we get panicky about, say, North Korea getting a big bang, we get uh, Iran, etc., etc. Do you honestly believe that by uh, the British having a nuclear uh, system would stop... Uh, say, a basket case running a third world country that it's actually got himself a nuclear weapon. Um, no, I no. think it might make him
4: think again, because what, what, one interesting point because is when people in the get, first place. When no, people just, get nuclear just, weapons... There is, no, is not even anecdotal evidence that suggests that might be right. When people get nuclear weapons, oh yes there is, when people get nuclear weapons, they begin to act in a much more cautious way. V-Day, India and Pakistan. I'm a great believer actually, and I know it's rather heretical in the modern sort of pacifistic world. More, the more nuclear powers, to some extent, there are the more stable the world is.
3: Julian, what's your thought? Well, m- my thought is A, I, I, I agree very much with what, what Eric has to say on the subject. But well, the thing that slightly worried me about that little clip we had from Mr. Alexander is when he said we'll change our posture in order to line up with the, the threats. That are perceived. Well, the answer is we don't know what the threat will exactly. be. But, and my experience over many years is it always comes out of the unexpected place at an unexpected time from an unexpected source. So you cannot just say we'll tailor it for the threats because you don't know what the threat will be. I
0: mean, the last 10 years, 12, 15 years have shown us that the threat is continually evolving. And who's to say, Eric, that the threat may not evolve to the point that Christopher made, where there is a third world dictator, for want of a better phrase, who is toying with the idea of deploying
4: something nuclear. Possibly, but I would also think of uh, a certain country which, is, which is, uh, has, has just put its head of the opposition, political opposition, into jail, which is threatening a number of countries upon whom uh, an, an attack on them we have to treat an, as an attack on us, and therefore uh, we could see a crisis in Eastern Europe of a rather traditional kind uh, emerging, and if we didn't have nuclear weapons in those circumstances, heaven help us. Eric Grove, thanks very
0: much indeed uh, for your time there. Thanks very much for joining us on that one. Let's move on. Lots of issues raised there. I think we'll be coming back to that many times in the future. Now, the Ministry of Defence is continuing to investigate the deaths of two servicemen in the Brecon Beacons in Wales in temperatures of almost 30 degrees centigrade. Lance Corporal Craig Roberts died alongside another TA soldier last Saturday. It's been reported they have been taking part in the selection process for the territorial section of the SAS. Well, Major General Gillian Thompson is still with me. And, and Gillian, I'm right in saying that you've commanded special forces in the past as part of your battle group. Um,
3: what are your thoughts on this one? Well, it's very sad that they died, but uh, the SAS and indeed the SBS and all special forces have to have very high standards. And what these chaps were doing was actually pushing themselves in order that they could pass. It was, if you like, it was almost their own keenness that resulted in their very sad deaths because they pushed themselves to the point where the dehydration started affecting their powers of reasoning. And this happens, and it's very sad. And what one must do is try and avoid it by monitoring what's going on, but you can't always, particularly on the sort of training they do where they're set off on their own to get as fast as they can to another place, there isn't someone walking beside them saying, don't remember, don't forget to have a drink.
0: From your own knowledge, what more can you tell us about the, the sort of things they do on these exercises?
3: Well, they, are, they have to do uh, fast walks, uh, ca- covering 40 to 50 miles, carrying heavy loads, uh, in a certain time map reading their way across on their own with no one looking after them because when they get into the, the combat zone, that's the sort of thing they may have to face. And it's part of the the, the rite of passage, if you like, in order to get into these elite units which are absolutely fantastic, and we're very lucky to have people of this sort of standard coming forward to do it.
0: Yes, I mean, there's no denying, is there, Christopher, that you have to be the best of the best of the best to be in these special units. It needs to be tough, doesn't it?
2: It needs to be tough. And I'll tell you one thing. Um, Sad, Mm. tragedy, etc. These exercises, these selection exercises, the exercises on escape and evasion for capture-prone uh, forces, even the resistance to interrogation exercises, not many people die. Mm. They don't lose that many. And that shows, A, the good organisation, generally, B, the standard of people that are selected to do it in the first place, and, three, it, 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 their, their absolute commitment. They don't just turn up and say, OK, where do you want me to run to, Gov.? Mm. They are in peak condition anyway. And if somebody says, now, if, you've, if you're feeling too bad, you know, just, just drop out. No way do you just drop out. Can you imagine having RTU written on the end of your sort of course? No, you don't want that at all.
0: But not many people become casualties. Not many people pass the course, we should say as well. I think it's something like a 90% rate of people that don't make it. Um, but I suppose finally on this one, there is an investigation going on into what happened here. It was exceptionally hot for that part of the country. Does there need to be more precaution? We we talk that there aren't many people who sadly do end up
3: like this, but should there be more put in, more safeguards? I don't know what sort of safeguards you put in, other than having people walking along beside making certain that they're all right, because in the end what they've got to do is to set out on their own to get to a place uh, in a certain time, and the whole game is being on your own and not having anyone to do the map reading for you or hold your hand for you or keep patting you on the back. And it's self-starting, and all you can do is say, for God's sake... When you start feeling thirsty, for heaven's sake, drink and fall out, if you think you've been pushed too hard, you're probably wasting your time telling them that, as Christopher has just said.
0: Absolutely. Mm. Gentlemen, thank you. This is
5: BFBS Fitrab.
0: The British government has been criticised for approving the sale of billions of pounds worth of arms to places like Iran, Israel and Argentina. A group of MPs has condemned the sale of strategic equipment to hostile nations and countries with poor human rights records. Rosie Layden reports.
5: This report contains records of a staggering £12 billion worth of arms exports to countries with poor human rights records or those known to be hostile to the UK. Sir John Stanley is the chair of the House of Commons
6: Committee on Arms Export Controls. We were very surprised both by the number of the export licenses and the value of the export licenses to the government's 27 countries of greatest human rights concern. We did not expect that the number would be anything like 3,000, which is what it is, and we certainly didn't expect that the value of those licenses to be anything like the figure of 12 billion pounds sterling, which is what it is.
5: Many military strategists predict the next big threat will come from Iran, but the report reveals British arms dealers are selling £800 million pounds worth of electronic surveillance and encryption equipment to the Iranians.
6: Cryptography is basically a device to protect people who want to listen in to communications from doing so uh, by making communications unintelligible. But it is a very, very important component for any authoritarian regime Mm. to use if it is going to carry out human rights violations and the repression of its own people. And that's why this is a very sensitive export, as far as this country is concerned, going to Iran.
5: And Iran is not the only surprising country on this extraordinary list. Britain has also sold over £7 million worth of equipment, including cryptographic materials and counter-IED technology, to Argentina.
6: They are a range of military equipment, mostly, and we will again be pursuing with the government as to why they think that these particular items of military equipment do not represent a threat to the Falkland Islands.
5: In a statement, a Foreign Office spokesman said, we do not export equipment where we assess there is a clear risk that it might be used for internal repression or would provoke or prolong conflict within a country or would be used aggressively against another country. But Sir John is not convinced.
6: The government has been saying to us that it considers that its human rights policies and its arms export policies are, in the government's own words, mutually reinforcing. We do not accept that position.
5: The principal export named in these deals is cryptography equipment to Iran, China, Argentina and one deal to Israel worth almost £8 billion. Sir John is now seeking further detail on exactly what items have been supplied to the 33 countries of concern named in the report.
0: Rosie Layden reporting there. Um, this is a story that's been as old as the arms industry, I suppose, isn't it? Should we only sell people, things to people we like? Uh, thoughts? Uh, i tell you something. You, 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 you have to start off
2: by asking what is a weapon. Mm. Uh, you can send... I remember the government selling Land Rovers... To the late Colonel Gaddafi, who immediately stuck something firing on the back of them, and they said, "Oh well, that's you know that's peaceful use is the is 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 the Land Rover." Uh, the corruption of the end user certificate. So I can send something to somebody, but where does that weapon end up? It ends up in a third and fourth. Uh, hand and also what happens if there's regime change mm. and it's rather like sending say okay we're going to give the rebels in Syria some sort of weapon so which guy gets them how are they used and what happens if they're used against their own people the whole thing is been it, it's been a fraught subject but along comes the arms sales defense industry in the United Kingdom and anywhere else and we're about the third biggest actually yes. In the world, and we, they say jobs, uh, dollars, because most of this stuff is done in dollars no. uh, that 's not bad, is it? I mean if you can reverse your, 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 if you can rev- reverse your decision on having blank cigarette packets there 's no way you 're not going to send some sort of weapons to a third world country and yeah. of
3: course uh, of course, we in the armed services, I use that expression widely encourage sales overseas because I may, as an admiral, want a particular kind of ship. And they say, well, we can't have that. It's too expensive. But if we sell 500 to a load of other guys around the world, price comes down and you can have them. So there is a, mo- a pressure from the MOD to sell Yeah, but uh, hang on a minute, hang on, Julian. Okay, so what as long do we... as you don't sell it to your enemy. Absolutely. <laughs> or you don't know that you're your
2: enemy. Yeah. So, I mean, what happened to you? Um, so you go down south in, in 82 to get the Falklands back, and fortunately, Julian, you got the Falklands back for us. But what had we done the year beforehand? We flogged them mm. to Type 42s, which were coming after you... 12 months later.
3: And bombs. And the bombs. Which were marked made in Britain.
0: Yes. Well, but the, the point, surely, is that uh, yes, we did sell the Type 42s. They're the only two still going now, aren't they, ironically? Um, but if we're not going to sell it, somebody else is, surely. So isn't it better that we do for the jobs, for well, the economy? Well, going back to
2: 82, I mean, the French did. Yeah. Uh, with the Exocet and the Super Standard, or the Supreme Standard, as it was known locally. <laughs> but, yeah, so it is, it is one of those things, do you have a moral issue here, Or do you say, listen, in practical terms, uh, we Mm. will be better Mm. off
0: forging relations with some countries by our arms sales programme, which is possible? The thing about cryptography, though, that's very much of the now, isn't it, in terms of protecting data transition and transport. How how important is that, and, and how worrying is it that we are selling these
3: cryptographical instruments? Well, the problem there is that they may be used against you in the sense that the, your st- uh, ciphered um, transmissions will be picked up and, and deciphered by people you would rather they didn't. So mm-hmm. there is a huge problem over that. And, and as Christopher says, what you don't know quite often is who is sp- selling it on from the original buyer.
2: That's right. And the other the other thing to consider, of course, on the good side of this, you, you sell them a system which uh, in, in theory you no longer use, mm. or you no longer need, or you sell them a variation of it, and that is very important. But today, technology, I don't know how many uh, sort of 3G or 4G or 5G uh, telephones there are in this building alone, mm. and then sort of Seven, eight years ago, there wasn't a single one. And that's, where we've, that's what
3: we're doing at the moment. And so encryption is moving at that sort of pace. Final word on this, Julian? Well, one of the worries that people have by this kit from sophisticated countries is that it might have been doctored in such a way that they are the seller is actually picking up the information this guy's transmitting to someone else and they'd rather that the seller didn't pick it up. Oh, I like if you that. See what I mean. A conspiracy there. That's well, good. no, actually, we, there's a thought that there's one of uh, the things like that
0: going on. Which I think actually moves <laughs> us very nicely on to our next story, finally, today. Uh, Russia's federal security services is heading back to the future. The Kremlin body, charged with communications and protecting President Putin, is set to invest 486,000 rubles, that's about 10,000 pounds, in these things. I'm enjoying this. It didn't ting. There we go. Go ting. There we are. Typewriters we're talking about. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the move back to typewriters has been prompted, apparently, by the publication of secret info via WikiLeaks, as well as the Edward Snowden thing. And and what we're talking about there, really, this data transit and whether it is safe, you know, a bit of paper in a typewriter, it's not connected to anything else. Um, Is that a good idea, Christopher, on their part? Uh, I
2: just think it's a fun idea. Um, (laughs) But, you see, a a, a lot of the Russians have been using them anyway. i tell you what they have to do. It's not just the typewriter. But tell me about the photocopier. Because in the good old days of espionage, who was the best person to convert to your side, to make a spy? It was the lady who was in charge of the photocopier because the top-secret documents which had been typed out a copy of it, or the original was always left on the photocopier, and she would bit, nip round to the, uh, to the, in those days the Soviet embassy, and, um, and, flog, and flog that for a bottle of flowers. So, I mean, you're not going to stop uh, espionage, but I do like the idea that you keep off uh, email and WikiLeaks turn around and say, oh, crikey, we've got to think of another way yeah, of doing this. Yes. I
0: mean, Julian, in, in your time, signals were sent via electronic communications during the Falklands conflict. But the old typewriter was probably a key command tool. Is there a, a thought that we might actually go back
3: to that for keeping data more It was secret? a key typing tool. All my orders were typed out in a typewriter and run off on a thing called a gestet, yeah. believe it or not. But uh, he's quite right. The less technology you use, Christopher is right, the less vulnerable you are. But you have to weigh that up with, you know, are we going to send a chap with a forked stick, you know, running from the MOD down to the prime minister's office every time you want to send a message.
2: So, yeah, and the, the other thing is that with the, with the, with the typewriter, um, it, is, it is not anonymous. Mm. You know who's done it. You know, you, you do the Agatha Christie thing and you say, oh, hang on, the T on, on, on the typewriter, the Imperial Piker uh, typeface is broken, so we can, we, can, we can get that one down to who sent it in the first place. Where emails uh, can be uh, anonymous, uh, you can retweet, you can do all sorts of things now, which you wouldn't be able to do before. But I quite like the idea of going back to the typewriter. You know, I write one book a year. Hmm. I do it on an imperial typewriter with a piker face. And uh, it's a nice thing, excepting when you come to edit. Yeah, you've got to type it all again then, haven't you, Julian?
3: You've got to cut and paste. Cut and paste. Really cut and paste. <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm in the business of uh, carbon. I'm buying into a carbon uh, carbon,
0: uh, uh, carbon company. Carbon paper. There's only one carbon paper company left in this country, believe it or not, and they're still running them, which is good. Thank you, Julian, for coming in this week. Christopher, a little word, just briefly, on what's coming up next week. Uh... Well, next week, I think we've got to see the first week of General Horton.
3: Mm.
2: Um, He, his priority, Afghanistan, etc. But this is his first week when he walks into the door, walks through the door, sits down at his desk, looks at the entry and says, oh, my God. Uh, But the one thing he's got, he doesn't have to call anybody, sir, anymore. Um, Take um, a letter, Miss Cooper, will you?
0: (laughs) Thank you, sir. (laughs) Yes, thank you indeed to all of my guests this week. uh, Defence analyst Christopher Lee and, of course, uh, Major General Julian Thompson. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. Uh, You can tweet us or send us a typewritten letter at BFBS bfbssitrep. You can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com forward slash sitrep. Thanks very much indeed. Kate Jabot is back next week for me and the guests. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.
5: Sport Sport. and music Music. for the British forces. This This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.